What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On. Mark, what the hell is going on now? What the hell is going on is inflation is taking off across the country. So prices rose 5% in May compared with a year ago. Overall, prices have jumped 9.7% at an annualized rate over the three months that ended in May. Gas prices are up 56.2%. The median national rent climbed 9.2% in the first half of 2021. Housing prices jumped the most in more than 30 years in the 12 months through April at 15% gain. Food costs more, gas costs more, housing costs more, car rentals cost more, everything costs more. We are experiencing for the first time in many years inflation, and it's worrisome. Well, it is worrisome, but I think what worries me more is not seeing the byproduct of sort of lifting the manhole cover over COVID America and letting everybody out to spend money. What worries me more about it is that the Biden administration, A, seems pretty indifferent and dead set on the idea of spending even more money. That's part one. And part two, that people like Bernie Sanders and all of the under 30s who think that he's the messiah think that the answer to this problem of, well, I can't afford an apartment and I can't afford a car and I can't get a job is here. Why don't you let the government support you? Why don't you let the government send you to college? Why don't you let the government give you an unemployment subsidy? That seems to me to be a recipe to continue this problem and make it worse. Sure, and make it a permanent problem. I mean, the hope is that this inflation is a temporary phenomenon that is due to the weird economic impact of the pandemic, right? So when the lockdown started in last spring, the economy was in great shape. Unemployment was low, jobs were being created, economy was booming. We didn't have a economic crisis because of the economy. We had a pandemic, which caused the government to intentionally shut down the economy, intentionally cause a recession in order to protect us from the virus. And we've had podcasts debating the, the wisdom of those lockdowns. But the reality is that during that time, the government pumped trillions and trillions of dollars into people's pockets to help them get through that. They had nowhere to spend a lot of that money, so they saved a lot of that money. And now we're recording this after Fourth of July weekend where people are traveling and people are going on vacation again and we're going out to restaurants and all the rest of it. And the supply side of the economy isn't ready to keep up, in part because we're giving people you know, $300 a week unemployment subsidy. So it makes no sense to work when you can make more stay at home so people can't find workers. And then you've got all these weird economic effects on different industries like timber and, and wood for housing. You know, people are ready to start renovating their homes again and there's not enough supplies for that. Maybe some of that will shake out over time as the sort of the dormant economy starts revving up again and all these sectors start coming back. But Mike Strain, our head of economic policy at AEI, seems to worry that a lot of this is more structural and it's not going to just go away after a few months. What do you think, Danny? Obviously, Mike knows better than me and you, I should underscore. Um, 
<laughs> Especially me. Sorry, folks, this is me getting my own bag at Mark for a crack he made before. But the bottom line is, I think that people have gotten so used to things the way they are, that they're not going to be amenable to the notion of pretty serious changes. You know, everybody's used to the fact that interest rates are really, really low, that money is basically cheap. And there are going to be those of us who are willing to spend a little bit more on for whatever it costs on Amazon and are going to be willing to spend a little bit more on lumber or on real estate or on rent. But there are plenty of people who can't, who don't have the jobs and worse yet, are not willing to take the jobs. And so what I see, you know, when we talk about this is not just this phenomenon of inflation. I think that's just the top line. But these sort of very, very serious underlying problems that we've allowed to fester in a very serious way. You know, the fact that there are so many people in our country who are of working age and who don't work seems to me to be an existential crisis for the country that is not going to be mitigated by the Fed raising or even by a $15 minimum wage. You had the problems with the labor participation rate before the economy went into the COVID lockdown. But then during the lockdown, you're you're starting to see stories about how a lot of people are just decided, well, I'm just not going to come back into the economy. I'm going to retire early. Or the exits are not going to be matched by reentry. Or I'm going to live with my parents because I moved back in with them because why should I pay rent? And now I'm there and my mom's doing the laundry and I kind of like that. And yeah, I mean, that's a thing. It is a thing. And the reality is, is that during the lockdown, I was supportive of all the spending because it wasn't feeling that the era of big government is over. We had a once in a generation crisis. And so, okay, we needed to borrow money and spend it to get people through that. But then, you know, Biden comes along. We had just signed a $900 billion bill in December that Trump signed with uh, more COVID relief. And then Biden comes in after the crisis is essentially over, right? Because the vaccines were finally being deployed and they wanted to use the crisis as a pretext for all this government spending that they want because they're socialists, right? And so we had to pass $1.9 trillion bill using the budget reconciliation process with just democratic votes because Biden had to do something and wanted to get credit for saving us from the pandemic. And then they want to pass, you know, $6 trillion in other spending. The pandemic is going to go away, but the hesitancy about spending borrowed money will live on forever. Keep spending and spending and spending. You're putting the foot on the gas of the demand side of the economy by pumping all this money when the supply side of the economy can't keep up. And that's resulting in inflation. So you get this vicious cycle where, you know, if you are working, you're actually getting pay cut because not only is it cheaper to not work by getting the extra unemployment subsidy, but guess what? The value of your dollars, if you are one of those good, intrepid entrepreneurial people who is willing to work despite all that, the value of your dollar is going down. And so you're getting a pay cut because of all this inflationary pressure. It just seems to be, what's the word I'm looking for? It's mindless, stupid, (laughs) idiotic, dangerous. Dangerous. Uh, 
One of the things that turned up in our research is that there is a very broad awareness of inflationary pressures in the economy among the population. And I think that's natural. But, you know, for Mark and me, we really wanted to know, is this something to worry about? Is this something we should be talking more about? Are there real serious underlying problems that are driving this beyond COVID? So we asked the aforementioned Mike Swain, who is the Director of Economic Studies at AEI and a columnist at Bloomberg, and overall just a sort of a smart guy, to join us to talk the economic of this situation. Well, Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So consumer prices are rising 5% from a year ago. Overall prices jumped at an annualized rate of 9.7 over the three months ending in May. Gasoline's up 56.2%. Rent is up 9.2%. Housing prices are up 15%. What the hell is going on? Well, uh, what's going on is that we have surging demand. People want to go out and spend money. Businesses want to hire workers in order to meet that demand. But supply is not keeping up. Supply is being held back due to pandemic-related issues with supply chains. I don't know if either of you have tried to buy furniture lately, but that's incredibly difficult to do. It's being held back by public policy by the generosity of unemployment benefits, which are keeping workers on the sidelines. It's being held back by lingering issues with childcare, making it harder for some workers to actually show up to work because schools are still closed or daycare centers are still closed. Summer camps aren't fully open, things of this nature. Uh, and so you have a situation where demand is booming for a variety of reasons as well. The uh, president's stimulus package was too large. You would naturally see a boom because of the large amount of money that households have saved over the course of the last 15 or 16 months. Now they want to go spend some of it and the economy is reopening. So booming demand, supply that can't keep up, uh, the natural outcome is for prices to rise. That's what we're seeing. So Michael, I think pretty much Anybody who's gone out of their house or crawled out from under their rock, depending on who they are, has noticed that prices have gone up. You see it at the supermarket. You don't have to buy furniture. You don't have to be buying a house. You don't have to be buying a car. There's tons and tons of sort of low level anecdotal information about this. But I have a couple of questions about the government. So one of the factors is, yep, we've all been hoarding cash. (laughs) I have more well, than a couple of questions just... about the government, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That sounded weirdly, weirdly conservative. I have thousands of questions about the government, but a couple in this regard. You know, obviously people have been saving a lot of money because they've been trapped at home with nothing to do over the last year, year and a half. But the government has also been throwing money out of a helicopter with wild abandon. Why is it that the government isn't responding to this. I looked in our research at quotes from the Federal Reserve and from you know the leaders at Treasury, and they're all like, no, 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 nothing to see here. You know, maybe we'll raise rates in 2023. But yeah, that's just a couple of years out. I have my own what the hell is going on question there. I'm similarly mystified by the Fed. The Fed is, I think, unhelpfully and remarkably blasé about the risks from the kind of demand supply imbalance facing the economy. One of those risks is inflation. Another risk is financial instability. It is, I think, 
a very difficult situation to figure out, right? So one totally reasonable view is that the supply side of the economy is being held back by a whole bunch of temporary factors that will abate by, you know, mid-September, early October, something like that. The demand side of the economy is being juiced by really generous fiscal policy. The $900 billion stimulus that President Trump signed in December after he had lost the election combined with the $1.9 trillion stimulus President Biden signed put $2.8 trillion into the economy for this year. That's temporary as well. And so, yes, we have booming demand and lagging supply right now. But you know, by the time we hit the fall or the middle of fall, demand will have come back to earth and supply will have grown substantially. And so maybe we don't want to be worried about it. That's the Fed's view. It's a coherent view. But what's odd about the Fed is they are you know, they're kind of dismissing these concerns, right? They're not saying what I just said. They're not saying this is a difficult situation. It's hard to really know what's going on. We haven't exited a pandemic in in a century. We don't really know what's going to happen. We're keeping an eye on it. They instead seem to be saying, you know, inflation is mission. What inflation? And that I think is troubling because that sends a signal to markets and it sends a signal to businesses that the Fed really doesn't put a lot of weight on the component of its mandate that requires it to maintain stable prices. And what really is insidious about inflation is when it starts to change people's perceptions, when it starts to change people's beliefs about the Fed's willingness to fight inflation. If you wanted to make people think that you were not willing to do the hard things that are necessary to fight inflation, you would be behaving the way the Fed and the Treasury have been behaving. You could have the exact same monetary policy they have while also signaling that you think inflation is really significant, a significant risk, and that you're willing to fight it. For some reason, they're not choosing to do that. So you mentioned the effects of the uh, combined stimulus, the Trump and then the Biden stimulus. But that's not all the stimulus that Washington has planned. Republicans just offered a $1.2 trillion infrastructure deal. I would be fascinated to hear what you think the effect of that's going to be on inflation. And then, of course, you know, Biden has proposed $6 trillion in new spending with his American Families Plan and all the rest of it. How is all this additional stimulus going to affect inflation? And is, it, is this the wrong time to be injecting more government spending into the economy? So the $1.2 trillion kind of package, a bipartisan group of senators are trying to push over the finish line, actually, I think would not really materially affect my outlook for inflation or for the economy as a whole. And that's a credit to the way that President Biden is thinking about infrastructure and, and to the way that these senators have designed the package. So we all got used to thinking of infrastructure in President Obama's first year in office as a way to stimulate the economy. You know, the economy is weak. We need to create some shovel-ready jobs and, and get money into the economy. And, and that will that will kind of reinflate the economy in a Keynesian sense. That's the way President Obama talked about it and tried to sell it. You can do an infrastructure bill that is like that, but those are you know typically gonna fail because as President Obama, you know, famously said, you know, it turns out it's a lot harder to find shovel-ready jobs than than we thought. This infrastructure bill that's being contemplated is very different by design. It is designed to spend money over an eight-year period. It's designed to not look for shovel-ready jobs, but to actually look for 
projects that need done. And, you know, again, that eight year period indicates that they're not in a big hurry to spend the money. And so what you would see is instead of an infrastructure program that was designed around giving the economy a short-term boost, this would be an infrastructure program as the senators have designed it, that would be uh, designed to improve the longer term productive capacity of the economy and that would be more investment focused. And so, yes, this would boost the economy you know, a little bit in 2022, maybe a little bit in 2021, depending on the timeline, but not all that much. The president's plans for the you know, extra you know, $5 trillion of spending on top of that, I think would be a different story because a lot of that would be spending designed to put money in people's pockets immediately that would boost current consumption. And you know, the way that the debate is looking, I think quite a bit of that would end up being deficit financed. And so that would, I think, have a big impact on whether or not the economy was, was overheating in 2021 and 2022. And, you know, from that kind of, you know, macroeconomic price level management type perspective, I think it would be a huge mistake. The $1.9 trillion in February was a huge mistake. I mean, that was many times larger uh, than it needed to be as well. And, you know, that that has put the Fed in a really tough position. And it's, I think, was, I don't know, five times larger than it needed to be, something like that. Five times larger than it needed to be is an awful lot of money. I, I want to ask my question about the money, but I'm not going to sort of interrupt the flow of our conversation about inflation. Now, it seems to me, and of course, you are in a particularly good position to know just what a terribly uninformed and lousy economist I am. Also, I'm kind of bad at arithmetic, but, and poor <laughs> but it policy. seems to me that... <laughs> Shut up, Mark. Who asked you anyway? Um Coming back to Mike, the expert here, one of the things that strikes me is that the people on whom inflation like this is hardest are the poorest among us, the people who can least afford food, housing, and the basics of life are the people who are going to be hit the hardest by inflation. Doesn't that make it all the more weird that this super liberal administration seems indifferent to them? Or, or, or is it that they think that they're taking care of them by throwing money at them? Yeah, it's, it's really troubling. I mean, uh, you know, another, you know, certainly inflation increases the costs of, you know, meat and dairy and housing and the things that you, you really need to survive. Inflation also erodes the purchasing power of wages. And so what you're saying is, you know, a situation where, uh, you know, running the economy hot, boosting consumer prices while also boosting stock values. So uh, people who, who are higher income and have a lot of money invested are seeing uh, substantial investment gains. Lower income people who rely much more on wages are seeing nominal wage increases. I mean, nominal wages have been growing really rapidly, but prices are growing rapidly as well. And so if wages go up by 4% and prices go up by 5%, that's actually a pay cut because the purchasing power of your wage has actually declined. And so it's, it's a substantial worry. I mean, my big worry about the environment we're in, I'm not worried about a kind of you know, 1960s style inflationary regime where people are you know, increasingly concerned about price inflation and that gets baked into all sorts of transactions. People demand higher raises from their bosses because they think prices are going to rise. In turn, that leads employers to raise prices. In turn, that leads workers to ask for higher wages. In turn, that leads uh, employers to raise 
prices even more. And so you have this kind of self-fulfilling inflationary cycle. That's a possibility, I think. It's something that we should be that we should be keeping an eye on. But I don't think it's the most likely outcome or what should be our top concern. I think our top concern instead should be that we've pushed the demand side so much further than the supply side of the economy can keep up that the Fed comes under increasing pressure to slow the economy down. And, you know, the Fed is good at stopping economic growth by causing a mild recession. It's less good at taking economic growth down a percentage point or two, right? The Fed can push the unemployment rate up into recessionary territory. It's much harder for the Fed to add, you know, one percentage point to the unemployment rate where the economy is still growing, but the economy is cooling. And so what worries me is that the Fed will try to cool the economy, will fail at that and instead cause a recession. And that is where the poor really get hurt. That's where the working poor get hurt. That's where low-income households really get hurt. You know, in the recovery from the Great Recession, the bottom 20% of workers didn't really see the recovery reach them until around 2015, which was six years after the recession officially ended. Uh, If the recovery had ended instead in 2014, those workers would have been worse off than they were before the Great Recession began. And so the goal should be to have a long expansion that lasts, you know, a decade would be great. Another, Another decade of uninterrupted economic growth that is long enough to allow workers at the bottom to really see sustained gains. And I think by pushing the economy so hard in 2021 and 2022, there's a real risk that the Fed is going to accidentally cause a recession and that that's going to leave out you know, the bottom 20% or the bottom third of workers. So the economy wasn't in trouble when the pandemic hit. We intentionally shut it down in order to lock down and, and prevent the spread of the, the virus. You've got now consumers who have all this money from the government or elsewhere saved up, and you've got sectors of the economy that were in hibernation during the pandemic and haven't been able to start up fast enough to keep up with the demand. You've got this weird, if anybody's rent, tried to rent a car recently, it costs like $100 a day to get a, a compact car because the used car market was hot during the pandemic and they sold up all their cars and now they can't buy them because of the ship shortage. So that, those are all weird COVID effects, right? But assuming all that shakes out, you still are worried that there's some systemic inflation, right? What can the government do about that? You know, you think back to the 1970s and whip inflation now and all the horrible failed efforts to deal with inflation back then, other than not doing harm by continuing to pump stimulus into the economy, what could the government do? Well, the Fed certainly has a large role to play in, in, in that kind of business cycle management. And, you know, the Fed has a number of choices that are facing it. The first choice relates to something that we, that we talked about earlier. The Fed can change the way that it talks about these issues. And the Fed can communicate clearly to markets and to businesses that it is worried about this. It doesn't necessarily think it's the predominant risk or, or what it should be most worried about, but that this is on the radar and that if things get out of control, it's very willing to step in and remedy the situation. I mean, you have to remember, you know, how did we come to enjoy four decades of really low and stable prices? Paul Volcker became the Fed chair and inflation was out of control. 
and Volcker started a massive recession. The unemployment rate got up to 10%, which you know it, it took until the Great Recession, the financial crisis of 2008, for the unemployment rate to get anywhere near that high. Volcker jacked interest rates up into the high teens. Anybody who tried to buy a house you know, at that time paid a mortgage rate that would seem astronomical to people today. And Volcker kept his foot on the neck of inflation until prices dropped and until, importantly, until markets and businesses got the message that the Fed was willing to leave millions and millions and millions of people on the unemployment rolls and cripple the economy in order to keep prices low and stable. That started a whole new inflationary regime that we've lived under for, again, for, for the past four decades, where we don't worry about inflation. We know it's going to be you know, 1%, 2%, 3%, something in that range, but nobody's worried about uh, a period of prolonged price increases. If anything, the problem of the last 10 years has been inflation has been too low, not too high. And so the Fed needs to recognize that, that credibility on inflation fighting was hard won. And it needs to make clear to market participants and to businesses that if it needs to do something like that again, it will do something like that again. And I think if the Fed you know, simply signals that through its communications, that, that would go a long way. The other things the Fed needs to do are to decide when it's going to roll back longer-term asset purchases and to decide when it's going to increase its monetary policy short-term rate. And the Fed is, you know, in the last in the last meeting last month, the Fed started to take some steps toward a more realistic projection for when it was going to start raising interest rates. Prior to the meeting, the Fed, you know, said it wasn't going to happen until 2024 at the earliest, which was uh, not really credible in, in in my view. So the Fed needs to needs to make some make some decisions both about how it talks about these issues and about its monetary policy. What can Congress and the administration do? You know, the big thing I think Congress and the administration can do is to focus on boosting the supply side of the economy. It would be totally sensible, uh, in my view, for Congress to end the $300 unemployment benefit supplement this month, if it can. I mean, President Biden would never sign that, but I think that would be- A lot of governors are doing it. A lot of governors are doing it, yeah, but there's starting to be some lawsuits, and so uh, I think it's 26 governors um, or thereabouts have decided to opt out of the program. But just last week, there started to be some suits and, and a court in Indiana ruled that Indiana had to continue participating in the program until there was some additional court rulings. And so there's some ambiguity about this at this point, I think, unfortunately. But those governors are making absolutely the right decision. It would be totally reasonable for Congress to step in and, and, and attempt to end that program early. And, you know, other things that can be done to get workers back in the workforce and to help businesses become more productive, because that is going to, you know, both kind of balance supply with demand and also going to find a way to absorb these increases without boosting prices. So first of all, I have to insert an incredible fun fact. It's actually not a fun fact. It's just a fact. We used to have a life-size cutout of Paul Volcker, who was six foot seven in our house. You're so weird. <laughs> that, so that is a lot. That, that is a story from 30 years ago. That he was a hero. I he was a hero to remembered. you. Well, <laughs> 
Not to me exactly, but yes. But you reminded me of that of something I'd forgotten. So here's my question. You're talking about employment. And obviously, you know, again, parts of this are temporary and short term. But from what I hear from people like you and, and others and our colleague, Nick Eberstadt, there are some real systemic changes as well. You know, it's not just that there's an employment shortage because people are getting an extra 300 bucks. Yeah, that's part of it. And a lot of those people will decide to go back to work. But one of the things that Nick and you and others have talked about is the fact that labor force participation, even before COVID, was at levels similar to the levels at the end of the Great Depression. In other words, fewer and fewer Americans were choosing to work even if the jobs were available. And so what I'm interested in is if part of what inflation is about is that you can't make enough stuff, you can't get supply chains in the right place, you can't get uh, the product to market because you don't have the workers. And, you know, the restaurants can't open for lunch because they can't find the waiters. And, you know, the taxis can't go back into business because they don't have the drivers. If that's, in fact, part of our new economic situation, how are we going to actually see our way out of this? And doesn't it imply that there are some more serious challenges to just the COVID blip to our economy? Oh, sure. Mark's right. The economy was in great shape in February of 2020, but there were lots of longer term, slower burning challenges facing the economy in February 2020. And those are all still with us. And and, and the pandemic has exacerbated some of them. And we need to turn our attention to those as the pandemic fades and enters the rearview mirror. One of those certainly is workforce participation. There's no question about that in my mind. We need to take very seriously the fact that fewer and fewer people are participating in the workforce, particularly men. If you look at kind of overall gains in workforce participation during the 1980s and 1990s, those were actually driven by women entering the workforce. Uh, If you only look at men, you see that men have decreasing their participation in the workforce decade after decade after decade. You know, what do we do? I mean, there's a whole host of things that need to be done. It starts with our education system. We need to make sure that people have the skills they need to compete in the workforce. And in too many school districts, uh, the quality of education we're giving young people is, is a national scandal and an embarrassment. We need to figure out ways to better train older workers who need to change industries or need to change occupations. Uh, In my view, we need to encourage work to a greater extent by subsidizing it to a greater extent for low-income households through programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit. There are tons and tons of barriers to workforce participation that have been uh, created by governments or allowed to exist by governments, Uh, occupational licensing restrictions, the disability insurance program, things of this nature. We need to remove these sorts of obstacles and barriers to employment as well. More fundamentally, we need to decide whether or not work matters. I mean, one of the most troubling aspects of the public debate over the past month or two has been a resurgence of this view that, you know, there are all these dead-end jobs and, you know, if an extra 300 bucks a week from the government is enough to keep you out of the workforce, then your job isn't worth, you know, your old job isn't worth returning to and working in the fast food sector or the retail sector is, you know, somehow beneath the dignity of people and and we shouldn't be asking anybody to do that. And $15 an hour is a compromise wage and it's too low and and we should be pushing wages uh, at minimum wages even higher than that. You know, this represents an attitude toward work 
that I think is fundamentally wrong and I think is really destructive to our society. Instead of telling people that the jobs they had are dead-end jobs or the jobs that are available to them are dead-end jobs and are somehow beneath their dignity, we need to tell people that all work is dignified and that those jobs are excellent places to start and excellent kind of rungs on the ladder. And the goal should be to get your feet on the ladder and to climb. And I think, you know, getting that disposition and that attitude toward work right is a really important component of solving the problem. So it seems like the Democrats in control of Congress and the president are intent on putting their foot on the gas with a lot more stimulus, right? And the only alternative to control that seems to be the Volcker solution, which is to raise interest rates and put the brakes on. Anyone who drives a car knows that hitting the brakes and hitting the gas at the same time is a great way to uh, destroy your car. What is the impact of that on an economy? Well, I think the, you know, the hope is that, that that doesn't happen, right? I think it would, be, it would be bizarre, I think, Mark, for the reason that you said, who would slam the brake and hit the accelerator at the same time. It would be bizarre to pass a, a multi-trillion dollar bill on a party line vote using reconciliation that pumped a whole bunch of money into the economy over the short term. That would put the Fed in a really difficult situation. And you would have a situation, again, where, where monetary policy and fiscal policy, where the administration and Congress and the Fed were acting at, at cross purposes. Um, and that's just not a good place to be. But isn't that where we're heading? Well, I guess that depends on what you think the likelihood is of there actually being a five or six trillion dollar reconciliation bill with, uh, with a whole bunch of social spending in it. God willing, not at all. That would be nuts. So my exit question, because I know we're running over time. My exit question for you is, is my pet question. It is the one I ask every time I have an opportunity. And it's exactly what we're talking about right now, which is where the hell is all this money coming from? And isn't somebody going to have to pay for it? Yeah, we borrowed a lot of money. A remarkable thing happened in the second quarter of 2020. The economy shrank by about 9% but people's incomes grew by over 10%. This is the kind of thing that almost never happens. And, and, and the reason that it happened is because we borrowed a lot of money. It gave it to unemployed workers through unemployment benefits, gave it to workers who were still attached to their jobs through the Paycheck Protection Program, gave it to state and local governments, gave it to workers in the form of direct checks. There are many households who have gotten well over $10,000 from the government over the past year and a half in the form of direct aid. And I think that a lot of what we did was, was appropriate given the circumstances. There was enormous amounts of uncertainty. We all thought back in March that we were going to do 15 days to slow the spread and 45 days to slow the spread. And, you know, we had these really draconian lockdowns and we all thought it was going to be temporary. And so, you know, the government picks up the tab for a couple of months or something, but then a couple of months, of course, turned into uh, longer than a year. And so, you know, I think that governments have an ability to borrow money and the situation we were in last spring is exactly the kind of situation where you want to borrow money. It was also appropriate to borrow lots of money during World War II, for example. And so that, I think, made sense. What worries me is that there was no kind of immediate consequence of that, right? And so I think that a lot of people, particularly on the political left, you know, kind of want to just keep the party going. And you know, why don't we keep these unemployment benefits going? We should be thinking about these sorts of direct checks over a longer period. 
we should be giving households with children a check every month in the form of a child allowance uh, that's a much more generous monthly version of a child tax credit, et cetera, et cetera. And that is problematic. We should be able to deploy extraordinary fiscal measures during extraordinary circumstances. We are not going to be in an extraordinary circumstance this summer. We're not going to be in an extraordinary circumstance this fall. And hopefully we're not in another extraordinary circumstance for uh, you know, a decade or, or longer. You know, so the attitude should be, okay, well, we did what we needed to do and now let's get our fiscal house in order. The attitude should not be, we did what we needed to do and boy, was it great to get those checks and, and we should keep doing it because who, do, who doesn't like checks? And you know, President Trump was really bad on this. President Biden has been, has been really bad on this. And I think it's a big problem. Where does the money come from? Well, you know, it's going to have to be paid back. It's going to have to be paid back through higher taxes on workers or businesses. It's going to have to be paid back by our kids or grandkids. It's going to have to be paid back by inflation, which would erode uh, the value of the debt. You know, if we have $100 of debt, but prices keep rising, that $100 is worth less and less. And that's a common way to deal with debts. And so, you know, it does have to be paid back. And more than that, it has subtle but pernicious effects on, on the economy in the meantime. We could be in a place where the federal government is routinely spending more money every year servicing the debt than it spends on national defense. And that seems like a, a screwy uh, set of priorities. Oh, on that troubling note. This is something, you know, no one wants to pay attention to it because we're too busy, you know, getting our party on after COVID. But this is something we're going to be paying for for a really long time. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us today and for uh, for lifting our spirits. Yeah. Always a pleasure. <laughs> and, and, and anytime you, you want your spirits lifted, just give me a call. Will do. Thank Thanks. you. Take Thanks, care. Mike. Tons. Take care. Oh, Danny. So every podcast we end, we almost always end the interview with, well, that's depressing. (laughs) This this podcast didn't fail to deliver on that front. I mean, I was struck by what he said about how we're going to be spending more money on debt service than defense. The one area of government spending where, you know, we've discovered anything out of this pandemic, it's the rising threat that China poses to the U.S. And the one area we should be spending money is the national defense. And it's the one area where the Biden administration actually, when you factor in inflation, is actually producing a defense cut. So, you know, we're spending money hand over fist and handing out cash and checks and subsidies to people who don't need it, but we're not spending money on our national defense. Right. Well, it was exactly like the stimulus package and the Great Recession, where they were looking desperately for shovel-ready jobs. And the one place they wouldn't look was at the Pentagon, because, of course, there is this absolute animosity on the left towards spending in our national defense. And except, of course, unless it's on social welfare, health care and a woke new agenda per General Milley. But for me, the thing that really I think is you know, worrying, frightening is that we are borrowing all this money. We are spending all this on debt service. We are disinvesting in defense. But our relationship particularly with our single greatest and most powerful adversary, the Chinese, is only getting worse. So while we are still buying every possible knickknack from Target and Amazon uh, and uh, dealing with the inflation that is affecting the prices and that is all coming from China, we are at the same time really hobbling our own ability to contend with the threat that China 
poses to us. I just see this as a really, really worrisome sort of cycle of events and a set of circumstances that is going to lead to unbelievable weakness on our part. Here's the reality. We have to be able to compete with China, and we can't do that if we're in a cycle of debt and inflation and our economy is not functioning as it should. Economic policy is national security policy, and we've got to stop shoveling. I love the uh, the visual of pouring money out of helicopters. Maybe we need to buy more helicopters and stop pouring money out of that. <laughs> Fine last words on which to end. More helicopters, less money thrown out of them. Think Amen. about it that way, folks. Anyway, take care. Happy Fourth of July. Happy Independence Day. Be proud to be an American. And thanks for listening. Take care. Our producer is Alexis Santry, and a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellataei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.